Okay, are you all ready? Yes, sir. All right, well, let's, let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for each person that's here and pray that you bless us as we go through the most wonderful things that you have revealed to us in your holy word. And we thank you for the work of the Westminster Divines and of your church through the centuries uh, as they um, expounded and defended the truth and uh, put it into these great doctrinal statements for us to benefit and learn from. We pray that you help us to have a better understanding of the things that we'll look at today uh, in the opening chapters of our confession of faith. And I thank you uh, for the gospel, for your grace, for your love, your patience, and your mercy to us, your church. We ask that you bless this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you'll take your copy of the confession, and I've, I've ordered 10 more of these, uh, but they, you know, I guess COVID strikes again, nothing can be delivered on time. So, but yeah, you guys, uh, the confession starts on page one. So after you get through the Roman numerals of the preface, page one is the opening chapter. And the confession of faith is 33 chapters long, it's 33 um, chapters of basic doctrinal headings and is everyone here familiar with the Westminster Confession, at least a little bit, heard of it, or read through parts of it, or anything? Okay. Okay. So the Westminster Confession was the, the byproduct of... Yeah, sorry, my name's chair over there. Um, did you bring your copy of the Westminster Confession? Okay. I ordered ten more copies of it so that everyone will get their own copy. Um, the Westminster Assembly met uh, from, I believe it was 1642 to 1647. So for five and a half years, um, 123 of the best theologians and churchmen and scholars, pastors after the Reformation of the 16th century. And they sat down and, and kind of hammered out um, like what I think is the greatest doctrinal statement probably ever written um, by anyone in, in church history. And even people that aren't Presbyterians will admit that was the greatest gathering of, of Christian ministers, scholars, historians ever. And so the, those guys not only wrote the confession and the catechisms and stuff, they also wrote you know volumes and volumes of their own theology, their own sermons and everything else. But the Westminster Confession really is a great summary of everything the church had learned up to that point after fighting you know, zillions of, of battles and debates. And that's what makes these, these doctrinal statements really um, crucial is our Christian forefathers in the faith, they fought against you know, every kind of denial of Christian truth that you can imagine. Uh, like anyone here ever talked to the Jehovah's Witnesses, ever had them come to your house or whatever? Um, years and years ago, long ago after, after I got married, some Jehovah's Witnesses came to my house and I had just been reading um, Athanasius. Y'all ever heard of Athanasius, one of the early church fathers? He was one of the great defenders of the full deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God. And he defended it against a group uh, called the Arians. And the Arians were a group that followed a guy named Arius. And Arius denied that Jesus was God. And I'm reading Athanasius. And he wrote this, this treatise in the 300s. And here, here he's, he's saying, now the Arians will quote this verse and this verse. You know, the, uh, Jesus said, the Father is greater than I. And, you know, Jesus is man. Jesus, you know, got thirsty. Jesus died. And then this Jehovah's Witness comes to my house. And he's quoting the same passages. He's misusing the very same passages that were misused 1,700 years ago. I remember thinking, this is why creeds are so important. And this is why those doctrinal statements that those churchmen of the past put into writing, that's why we, we recite them today. Uh, anyone here ever recited the Nicene Creed? The Nicene Creed, the Council of Nicaea met in 325. 325, and that's where they defended the deity of Christ. And that's why it's so important that we, we confess with those 
early Christians that Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, very God of very God of the same substance with the Father, that he is fully God. That's what these great creeds do for us, is they, they summarize the victories of God's people against false teaching, and that's why they're always valuable. Okay, so, so many people think, well, you guys have these real detailed doctrinal statements, and these things, they compete with Scripture. No, they don't. Uh, what they do is they help us to summarize Scripture, and they keep us from repeating every mistake that's ever been made. And I'll tell you, once I went through seminary, and I went through church history, and studied the history of, of theology, you don't hear anything new. Today, every false teaching that you hear today, um, our Christian forefathers heard in the 400s, the 500s, in the year 1100, in the year 1300, in the 1600s, the 1700s, you don't hear anything new. And so benefiting from what these guys did is, is we would be foolish not to. We would be foolish not to listen to, to the great uh, insights that they had into God's truth. Okay. Can I um, ask a question? Yes, Because you had mentioned Athanasian. Mm-hmm. He addressed the deity of Christ. Yes, the Athanasian Creed, doesn't that address the Trinity? It does. And did he address, did he address that or some oh, yes. of his followers? He did. Them? He did, yeah. Okay. He understood that God, God was a tri-personal being. Yeah. He understood that God was a tri-personal being. Um, and he, you know how old he was <laughs> at the Council of Nicaea? He's 22. <laughs> People have said the Western Church was saved by a brilliant, godly 22-year-old young man. And he just kept quoting the passages of Scripture. He just kept quoting the texts that, that teach the deity of Christ against the, the detractors from it. All right, so let's go ahead and just plow into point one here. By the way, chapter one of the confession, I feel bad. I, I, I ordered these, and, and like nothing can get, ever gets... Actually, if someone wants to use mine, I do have it in the phone. You have it memorized? Okay, good. No, I, I don't have it memorized. <laughs> I do have it in my phone. Okay, good, good, good. Excellent. Okay, of Holy Scripture. This is the longest chapter in the whole confession. The, the opening chapter on Scripture. Isn't that a pretty important subject, what we think of Scripture? Mm-hmm. So they made sure they, they address everything here. Okay, point one. Although the light of nature... And the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable. Yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Okay, so right out of the gate here, what they're pointing out is that God has revealed himself in creation, right? You can't look at the stars and butterflies and like the amazing things God made and not know that he's there. Everybody knows that, that God exists. But the revelation that God makes of himself in creation is not a saving revelation. Okay, you can't come to know Christ by looking at the stars or the moon or the sun or nature or, you know, I remember there was a guy that showed up um, at the church I went to when I was in college and he'd never been to church in his entire life. And he showed up at church one Sunday and we all were, you know, introducing ourselves like, who, who is this guy? We're like, what? what made you decide to come to church? And he was a, a physical therapy major, and they were doing gross anatomy. They were actually taking apart a human cadaver. And he said, when we looked at the, at the wrist of this guy and looked at the way the tendons all come together and go through that little carpal tunnel and the way it's designed, he's like, I just had a chill. Like, God made that. And if God made that, that means he made mine too. <laughs> 
And so he's like, I just thought I should go to church now. And he got saved. He came to Christ and, and got saved. It was a, an amazing testimony. But looking at a human wrist uh, on the inside and just seeing the bones and the way that it's built, you can't look at that and not know that God made it. You, you just you see it, his handiwork everywhere. But it's not a saving revelation that God makes of himself in creation. All that man can know about God from looking at around him is that he's there and he's not happy with us. And that's why all of man's religions will have usually the concept of sacrifice. You sacrifice something pure to appease the anger of the gods or, or whatever. Man knows there's something wrong uh, with the world around him. And that's why he's, he's inherently incurably religious. But he always inclines towards false religion. Okay? Apart from God's saving revelation, man's not going to uh, come to know Christ. Okay, so that's the first thing. The insufficiency of general revelation to save us. That's, and that's taught in Romans chapter 1 there. Okay, it goes on. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So think about all of the different ways in which God has revealed himself in a saving way to his church at different times. Remember when, when Adam and Eve, when they fall into sin, God just talks to them, right? He, he speaks to them and promises them one day the seed of the woman is going to come. Okay, And so Adam and Eve knew one day uh, there would be someone who would come who would save them. And what's amazing is that Eve names her firstborn child what? Remember the first child ever born was named what? Remember? Cain. You know what Cain means in Hebrew? Here he is. She thought Cain was the Messiah, the Savior. And turns out he wasn't. He was the first persecutor of, of the church. And then she has another son, Abel. And Abel's name means vanity, means uh, meaningless. It's almost like she's, at first she's excited, but then she's lost her faith or is like really struggling. And then what happens, of course, what does Cain do to Abel? Kills him. Okay, so it's going to be a long line to get all the way down to the Messiah. But God speaks to Adam and Eve. And then after the flood of Noah, after the Tower of Babel, after God confuses human languages and people disperse everywhere. In Genesis 12, God simply speaks to Abram. To me, Genesis 12, verse 1 is one of the most amazing passages in the whole Bible. All of a sudden, here's Abram. Abram's just an idol worshiper, just like his dad. He's just worshiping idols, doing his thing. And all of a sudden, God just talks to him. You, go over there, out of your father's house to a land I will show you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God would just speak to people at times. Now, after these times in which God is revealing himself in that way through dreams and through speaking directly to, he speaks directly to Abraham, he speaks to Isaac, he speaks to Jacob, and then he doesn't really say much to anyone until about 400 years later when Moses comes on the scene. Okay, and then God speaks directly to Moses. After the time of Christ, though, eventually, everything that the church needs to have is put in writing. Okay, as it says here, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth he committed the same wholly under writing. So scripture is the only thing that the church has today that is directly God's word. Okay, now we believe the Holy Spirit guides us and he, he convicts us and he can put a burden in our hearts to pray for this person and that person. But the only place that we can know that God is talking directly is scripture. Okay, and that's one thing you see all the way through 
uh, the Bible over and over again, more than 2,000 times in the Old Testament, it says, thus saith the Lord. And then you have direct quotations uh, from God. Jesus, when he uh, quotes from the Old Testament, uh, for example, in Matthew 22, he says to his opponents, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Isn't that an interesting way of putting that? Have you not read what was spoken? Normally, if someone speaks, you would think of hearing, right? But for Jesus, to read scripture is to hear God talking. It's an amazing uh, mixing of metaphors. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God, he says. Okay, so scripture has that attribute of being the very word of God. Nothing else does. I, I may have a dream. I may, may, ha- may feel like God's really impressed something upon me. But that's not God's word. That's not God's word. There's only one thing the church has today that has that attribute of being the very word of God, and that's the scripture. Okay, and so no matter what I ever say as a pastor or as an elder, um, if I can't demonstrate it to you from God's word, you have no obligation to believe it, and you have no obligation to obey it. Okay? I have no inherent authority at all. So if I, get, if I make errors, please do reject them and don't believe them. If I tell you what scripture says, though, you have to believe it. Okay. All right, so that's point number one. It's point number one really is the insufficiency of general revelation to save people and the need that we have for written revelation from God, and that's what the Bible is. Okay, point two. Under the name of Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these. Okay, and so there you have the, the 66 books of the Bible. I'm not going to read them all for you. <laughs> Um, And then at the very bottom of page three there, it says, all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. Now, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter three. I want you to see a a key passage here. 2 Timothy chapter three. And we'll look at verses 14 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. One of the reasons um, where this passage is located is important is um, 2 Timothy is probably the very last thing that Paul wrote before he died, before he was beheaded. Um, And he knew it was coming. He knew that he was soon going to be put to death for his faith. So this is him giving counsel to a young minister named Timothy. So it's interesting. Here's what he tells Timothy. Here's Paul's last words before he's going to depart this world and go on to glory. Look at verse 14. But you must continue in the things that you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Does someone have an ESV or, or yeah, what is ESV? How does it uh, render verse 16? Uh, all scripture is breathed out of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training for righteousness. Okay, breathed out by God. You hear that? All scripture is breathed out by God. Okay, that's really a better translation than inspired because the scripture is the, the very speaking of God, the, the breath of God. Okay, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction, righteousness, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, there's an adjective that's used in verse 16 that they translate as um, breathed forth by God. And it's, it's an adjective that occurs only here in the entire Greek New Testament. It's the adjective theopneustos, God breathed. Okay, there is nothing else in existence in the universe today that is God breathed other than scripture. 
It is the only thing. That's what the Reformation, when it said sola scriptura, you've heard that, that Latin phrase before, we believe in sola scriptura. What that's saying is there's only one thing that is God-breathed today, scripture. Are traditions God-breathed? No. Are the pronouncements of popes God-breathed? No. That's why when Martin Luther stood in front of that council at that meeting at Worms, when he was asked, will you recant? Remember what he said? Unless you can convince me by scripture and sound reasoning, um, my conscience is captive to the word of God, he said. Okay, and that's what, what we believe today. That there's only one source of the speaking of God in the universe today, and it's scripture. Nothing else has that attribute. Okay, so that adjective is only applied to scripture. In scripture itself, God breathed, and that's why we say, look, we're not saying all traditions are necessarily bad, but if they conflict with the word of God, they are to be discarded. Okay, and that's why we, when the Reformation happened, what are some of the things the church, the Reformation churches got rid of from the Middle Ages? What did they get rid of? All the stuff about Mary, indulgences, purgatory. You all know what purgatory is in Catholicism. They got rid of, um, you know, doing pilgrimages, the mass, priests, because none of those things are in Scripture. And so they saw these are traditions that have grown up over time, but they're in conflict with the word of God. And so they reformed the church and got rid of those things. Okay? And that's something the church always has to be willing to do. If we start to see that our practices or our beliefs are deviating from scripture or they're going contrary to scripture, we change them. We get rid of stuff if it's not biblical. Okay? So one of the Reformation slogans from the 1500s was, we are reformed and always reforming. So if there's, if there's more that's wrong, we should reform it and get rid of, get rid of the, the bad and, and be biblical in our, in our thinking. And I'll tell you, over the course, even over the course of my own uh, life and even my own ministry, there have been beliefs and ideas I've had that have been corrected by people that have pointed out things to me. In fact, on two different occasions, uh, this has been a long time ago, hopefully it doesn't happen very often now, but uh, where I've preached things on certain passages of scripture. And this one guy, uh, we met at Dunkin' Donuts and he walked me through, it was 1 Thessalonians 5, the opening verses, and he showed me. I totally got the meaning of the passage wrong. Totally got it wrong. And it was so embarrassing. And I, I just thought, man, how did I miss that? I had to get in the pulpit the following Sunday. Yeah, everything I said last week, just forget I said it. Um, but trust me, I am trying to get everything right. But that was, that was really hard on me personally. But that's what, that's what we should do, is that. Okay? All right, uh, point number three. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the Church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of, than other human writings. Have you all heard of the Apocrypha or seen, ever seen a Catholic Bible? <laughs> okay, the Catholic, Catholic Bibles have seven extra books in them that we don't have in ours. Okay, and they were written between the writing of the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament. It's the intertestamental period there. It's about 400 years from the prophet Malachi until the writing of the New Testament. And there's a bunch of books that were written during that time period. And they're not inspired. They're not God-breathed. The Jewish people did not receive those books as being inspired by God. And so they're not part of the canon of Scripture. Okay, and there's a lot more we can say about that. One of the reasons, actually, really, the primary reason we don't believe the Apocrypha is part of, is part of the Old Testament canon uh, is because, number one, the Jews did not believe that they were part of the Old Testament canon, but also the Apocryphal books themselves say they're not inspired. Well, I thought, how can Rome say these books are part of the Old Testament when the books themselves 
say that God is, there are no prophets in Israel. God is not talking to us anymore. And in fact, at the end of 2 Maccabees, my favorite passage in the Apocrypha, the guy that wrote 2 Maccabees says at the end, I've tried my best to compile an accurate history, but if there are errors in it, I do apologize. I did the best I could. <laughs> and you go, wow, how could, how could you seriously think that that's part of Scripture? Well, the reason Rome, uh, the Roman Catholic religion added those books to the canon is because there's a couple passages in them that sound a little bit like purgatory um, in Second Maccabees. That's one of the reasons that they're, they're part of their, their canon. But um, there's, a, there's other errors in them. For example, um, they have, uh, I forget what book it is, I think it's the book of Tobit, has Nebuchadnezzar reigning from Nineveh. It's like, Nebuchadnezzar was king of what empire? Babylon. Nineveh's the capital of what? Assyria. It's that they got them in the wrong empire. You go, okay, those kinds of historical errors are another problem. That's another reason we know they're not inspired, but that's a whole nother, a whole nother subject. But so the Apocrypha, we don't accept those books as, as inspired scripture. Okay, point four. This is an important one. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. So when God speaks, he can only speak with final and ultimate authority. There is no, there's nothing outside of God that authenticates him. Remember, I heard this illustration one time, and this is a really good illustration. In France, somewhere right now, is a piece of metal that is known as the meter standard. Did you know that? <laughs> like meters, like rulers that have meters on them are based on that piece of metal in France. Now here's the question. How do you know that the meter standard is a meter long? Well, <clears throat> it's the standard by which all other rulers are measured. You can't get any higher than the meter standard. It's the same way with God. When God speaks, he can only speak with ultimate final authority. He's not authenticated by anything outside of himself, by his own voice. Like when God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12 and just talked to him, you go out over there. Couldn't Abraham have, have said, well, how do I know that's really you, God? Here, here's some tests I want you to meet. God can only speak with final authority. Okay. So it's, it's the ultimate example of getting it from the horse's mouth. That's where the buck stops. There's nothing higher to measure the word of God by than that. Okay. It's like asking, how do you know that the meter standard is a meter long? Because it's the standard by which all other claims to be a meter long are measured. It's the same thing with God's word. Okay. Point number five. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Okay, so just stop there for a minute. There's no shortage of evidence that the Bible is the very word of God. There are fulfilled prophecies in it. Uh, there are all sorts of, there's 40, 40 some odd authors writing in three different languages on three different continents over a period of 1,500 years, and they all agree on the nature of God. They all agree on the nature of the gospel, how we're saved. And it's an amazing thing to see. You see the consent of all the parts, to me, especially the fulfilled prophecies. Jesus, when he came into the world, fulfilled at least 300 distinct, very detailed prophecies. 
There's prophecies that were written 500, 600, 1,000 years before his birth. You know, Psalm 22, for example, that's 1,000 BC that that was written. And it describes his hands and his feet being pierced. I remember reading, uh, doing some study on um, uh, fulfilled prophecies. That's also eight centuries before the invention of crucifixion. You think, that's incredible to me. David himself probably did not even understand exactly what he was writing there. Like even he maybe not fully understood the implications of what he was saying. But Jesus' birthplace in Bethlehem is described in Micah chapter 5. And there's just, you can go to passage after passage after passage. The writing into Jerusalem on a donkey in the book of Zechariah. How many pieces of silver he'd be betrayed for was written seven centuries before his birth. And on and on and on you can go. How could that be coincidental? How could anyone just kind of vaguely get something like that right? So there's no shortage of evidence that the Bible is a divinely given book. But look at what it goes on to say here. This is really good on them. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Okay, so it takes a work of God ultimately to persuade someone that the Bible really is the, the voice of God. You can show someone the evidence, and it's very compelling, but at the end of the day, it takes a, a work of God's spirit uh, to convince someone. Remember the, um, the man in the temple with the withered hand, and Jesus is standing right there next to the man with the withered hand, and he's surrounded by a group of Pharisees, and they're all just watching to see if he'll heal him. I remember it was a turning point for me reading that passage one day, because I thought the reason people don't believe is because there's, there's just not enough evidence that God is really there. And I thought, God, if you would just come down and do some miracles, if you'd come down and like rain fire and brimstone on some cities and like part some oceans and like do some cool stuff like that, everybody would believe in you. And it says, Jesus looked at that group of Pharisees, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. He says to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand and stretched out and healed completely right in front of them. And I'm thinking, reading it, that the next verse, they all fell to their knees in repentance and said, Lord, we want to become your disciples. What does the very next verse say they did? They went out and plotted immediately how they might kill him. I thought, wow, unbelief has nothing to do with, it's not an intellectual problem. It has nothing to do with facts. It's about rebellion in the heart. I don't want God to exist. I want to do what I want, so I'm not going to believe uh, that he made me. I'm going to think that we evolved from African apes or, or whatever. Okay. Oh, I thought you were raising your hand, sorry. <laughs> okay, um, point number six. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Okay, so stop there for a moment. So we're accountable to believe everything that's explicitly taught in scripture, but also everything that is a necessary deduction from biblical premises. Now think about one of the most, we were actually just talking about it, one of the most important doctrines of the faith is the doctrine of God. What do we believe about, about the nature of God? How many persons is God? Three. Okay, now is, can you look at one Bible verse and see a detailed description of that? No, but it comes from biblical premises that we are monotheists right there's only one true god and yet we see throughout scripture even in the old testament especially in the new testament with the coming of christ and then the sending of the holy spirit clearly there are three persons clearly and yet we're told to baptize people in the name singular 
of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So this one God exists as, as a tri-personal being. There are three distinct persons, yet they share the one undivided being of God. Now, I've been thinking about that for uh, close to 30 years. I have not got that completely figured out yet. But I do know, I do know why Christian theologians and churchmen and, the, and throughout history have recognized that's what we have to believe about God because that's how he's revealed himself to us. Okay, clearly the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit uh, can, be, can be lied to. Remember Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira? They lied about how much they sold that piece of land for. And Peter says, you have not lied to men, but to God, because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ is clearly God. He calls himself, I am, there to his opponents there in John chapter 8. Um, he is said to be the creator in Colossians chapter 1. He is said to contain the fullness of the Godhead. And we know God the Father, of course, Jesus calls him, my God. And so clearly there's one God, but there are three divine persons. Okay, that's a deduction that we make from scripture, but it's a necessary deduction that we make from scripture. Okay, so that's a, a real important concept. We're accountable to God to believe everything that's explicitly stated, but also everything that's deducible from biblical premises. Okay. All right, uh, last sentence of, of verse six there on page five, or, or point six. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. And that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. What, What they're talking about there is this. Does Scripture tell us what time we should have church? Does it say I have to wear a coat and tie? I know it doesn't say that. I don't like ties, but it's just one of those things, you know. My kids are like, why do you always dress up? And I'm like, because I'm going to the king's house. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going over to a buddy's house to watch a football game. Okay, the things like that, those are to be ordered by the light of Christian prudence and um, just in good order. Uh, are we told that we have to have pulpits and pews? No. You can have a worship service out in a cave somewhere, as many Christian people have had to through the centuries doesn't really matter. Those kinds of things are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence. But when it comes to things like that, we make a distinction between the circumstances of worship, like what time we worship, you know, where, where we meet, um, we meet in a building and things like that. Those are circumstances. And then there are elements of worship, like prayer. Is it a worship service if nobody prayed? Not really. What about if the Bible was not even opened or read? Is that, did we do what we're supposed to do in worship if the Bible wasn't opened and read? No. So we're supposed to pray. We know that. We're supposed to read the Bible. We're supposed to have preaching. We're supposed to do the Lord's Supper and baptism. We, there should be offerings, and we should sing hymns and psalms and, and things like that. And we look at Scripture and say, that's about it. That's all the Scriptures really, really tell us to do, which is why you know, we're, I'm not going to use uh, movie clips as sermon illustrations. I'm not going to do a skit. I'm not going to preach a sermon in a recliner with a cigar in one hand and a beer in another to look cool. I'm not going to do that. Because the scriptures don't command us to do that. No flying fairy. I'm not going to fly to the pulpit. <laughs> Have you seen that? Good, the no. pastor flying on a zip line to the pulpit. <clears throat> it's comical. Um, you have to laugh. It's really sad. Either, either laugh or cry. But, I mean, if, if you start going that direction, though, you might as well stand up in front of the church and say, we don't believe in the sufficiency of scripture, period. We don't believe that God's word is enough. So we got to do all this other stuff. Okay, and that's just not... That's not where, where I, ever, I ever want to be coming from. Okay, number seven. 
All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain into a sufficient understanding of them. So it's funny, when I was in seminary, we had to read like some of these like highfalutin scholars with you know multiple letters after their names. And they would be so confusing. And you read these guys, and a lot of them were, were liberals or what are called neo-Orthodox interpreters. And I just think, man, get, get, let me just go back and read Ephesians 2 again. It's so much clearer than, than all this. But you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to know the original languages. You don't have to have seminary degrees or go to Bible college to understand the Bible. And you can read it and understand it. Uh, we're blessed with these really good English translations. But it's, a, it's something that's open to everyone. But not everything in Scripture is plain and clear to everybody. Like, does, every, does anyone here have all the details of end times worked out? <clears throat> okay. Now, I think I have a lot of it worked out. It's taken a long time to get there. But there's still things I read. I go, people ask me questions at times. I'm like, I don't know what Ezekiel's talking about there. I, I'm not sure. I haven't had time to study this as much or that as much. But the things that relate to how we're saved, little kids can understand that. Little kids can understand that. In fact, let's look at a passage real quick. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. As soon as my little kiddos are able to read, I'll have them read this to me. And then I'll see if I can stump them. Ephesians 2, 8. Ephesians 2, 8. That's okay. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And I'll have my kids read that to me. And like when they're seven, eight years old. And I'll say to them, okay, so what this teaches is that God gives us grace. And then with the help of his grace, we can do good works and be saved, right? And they'll go, no, dad, it says not by works, lest anyone should boast. A seven-year-old can see that, right? And he'll try to come up with another way of confusing it. No, that's not what it says, Dad. No, that's not what it says, Dad. And I love that. I love how simple it is. It's just so, so simple and straightforward. And verse 10 gives you the balance there. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by good works. But when we are saved, we'll do good works because that's the fruit that grows on the tree. Okay? But apple trees don't don't become apple trees by bearing apples. They bear apples because they already are apple trees. It's the same way with a Christian. Christians do good works not to become Christians, but because they are Christians. Yes, I just have to say that last supplemental you did, Mm -hmm. when you said that the fruits of the Spirit are not an imperative, this is what you should do. Mm -hmm. It's the fruit of it. It's the apples that you see. Mm -hmm. Completely just changed my thinking of it. made it so clear. Praise God. Because I got all those as imperatives. I did too, up until like, the very point that you said that. And I was like, wait. Was, and I had to pause it. It was like, you better have love, joy, peace, patience, yes. patience kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh-huh. I'm like, I don't have any of that. Right. Rather, the, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in someone's life when they're saved, mm-hmm. those are the things that will start being born in their life. Right. Okay, But that's the fruit of salvation, not the cause of it. So, yeah, so real, real important. So we're growing progressively in, in those fruits. That's right. And, that, and they start out real small. 
But over time, as we're sanctified more and more, um, God will bear those fruits more and more in your life. Like you'll become more patient. You'll become more, uh, have more love, more joy, more kindness, more self-control. So, you know, I'm not the man I should be, but I'm very thankful I'm not the man I used to be. <laughs> like I'll never be really totally what I should be, but I thank God for, for all the work that he has done in my life. But all that work that he's done, all the fruit that he's born, that is the fruit of his saving work that he's already done. He saved me not by my works, um, but by faith alone in Christ alone. He does all the saving. And then he does that work in us and bears that fruit in us. So it's so important to keep that clear because it's like every generation will try to smooch the line between um, faith and works, and you can't. you got to keep that clear so that Jesus always does all the saving. He's the one that saves us. Okay, um, point number uh, eight. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. Okay, in, o- in other words, if, if problems come up in the church and there's issues in the church and, like, and we've got a, a controversy, you've got to go to the original languages. You have to go back to the Hebrew and to the Greek and look at exactly what they say, which means you've got to go, if you're going to be a minister, you've got to study that stuff. You know, it's like when I went to seminary, there's just no getting around it. You're going to have to, to learn how to read in Hebrew, which reads from right to left and looks like chicken scratchings, and you've got to learn Greek. And so it's hard, it's hard to do that, but it's, it's very, very worth doing. Um, and does anyone know why was Greek spoken at least as a second language by pretty much everybody in the inhabited world at the time of the writing of the New Testament? Wasn't it the trade language of that time? It was, but it is, I'm thinking of one dude in particular a couple centuries before Jesus comes on the scene. Alexander the Great conquered most of the world. Why do you want to do that? To spread Hellenization and Greek language. How many cities uh, over there are named Alexandria? I mean, he wanted everyone in the world to speak Greek. And so by the time the New Testament comes along, um, almost everybody does. And so it made the Great Commission a lot easier. Because everyone could speak Greek at least as a second language. Isn't that interesting? Alexander the Great, a man who all he's interested in is um, imperialism and empire and making a name for himself... He's the one that almost reunites the language of the world so they can all be evangelized by the gospel. Okay, God, God accomplishes his goals through strange things like that. Okay, let's look at, uh, real quick, point number nine, then we'll be done. The infallible, wait, wait, we didn't finish point eight, my bad. Um, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto and interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Okay, so saying there, the Bible should be translated into every language so people can read it for themselves. Okay. Um, and one of the great proofs that God is okay with translations is the fact that the New Testament quotes a Greek translation of the Old Testament constantly called the Septuagint version. Y'all ever heard of the Septuagint version? Okay, so they, they quote from that. So we know that God's okay with translations. Okay, let me, let me close this in prayer.